From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you. Welcome, everyone, to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Spring training is coming to an end, and the baseball season is about to begin. Do you take part in a summertime sport? If so, we have some tips on how to get ready, including how to choose the running shoe that's right for you. Believe it or not, when we look at studies, there's actually been no correlate between your type of foot and the type of shoe wear you should have. So we really stress just getting a good, comfortable shoe that you like to wear. Mayo Clinic Sports Medicine Specialist Dr. Ed Laskowski joins us with advice on spring training for your summer sport. Also on the program, wearable digital fitness devices can help enhance your workout, but which ones work best? And treating the frightening symptoms of vertigo. All that along with this week's health and medical news right after this. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shaw. And I'm Tracy McCray. Major League Baseball, you know, the season is just around the corner. I think opening day is, what, Monday, April 6th? Yes. And for a lot of us, that the beginning of baseball means the start of outdoor physical activity. Finally, after a <laughs> long winter, at least here in Minnesota. And Amen. Certainly out on the East Coast. Right. You know, maybe it's preparing for a 10K race, getting ready to play on your local softball team, or getting those golf clubs out of the closet and heading to the links, whatever. It is time for some physical activity outdoors. But Major League Baseball players don't take the field without weeks of spring training, and that's a reminder to the rest of us that conditioning is an important part of getting back into the game. Here with some suggestions on how to get ready for your favorite sport or outdoor activity is Mayo Clinic Sports Medicine Specialist, Dr. Ed Laskowski. Welcome back to the program, Dr. Laskowski. Thanks, Tracy. Pleasure to be here. So how about training for the rest of us? We know that the baseball players are down in Florida. They're getting ready for their uh, season. A lot of spring sports are doing that, and it's supervised. But for the rest of us, talk to us about some basic things that we can do to get ready for uh, more and outdoor physical activity. Mm -hmm. Well, Tom, you know, we wouldn't dream of sending the baseball players out there and say just play, right? They have the spring training, they have conditioning, and and that's really true for the rest of us. We have a a saying, we say, you shouldn't play your sport to be in shape, you should be in shape to play your sport, meaning everything we do as far as a sport or activity has certain requirements of us, of our muscles, of our energy systems, our aerobic capacity. So we want to make sure that we're as prepared as possible for those types of endeavors. Um, you know, it's simple things like even if you're not running much over the winter, it's probably not a good idea to have your first run be a six-mile run. <laughs> you want to start gradually, a lot of common sense, but walk, run, and, and kind of ease into it so as not to get an overload injury. If you have a favorite sport like uh, tennis or so, you want to start training the movement patterns that are specific to that type of sport. So whether it be flexibility of the muscles around the hip that are important in tennis, um, helping you to reach uh, the way you need to, working on your core so that you're stable in the core and can serve well and hit ground strokes well. Those are all important. And if you have a specific hobby or specific type of sport that you like to do, we like to train the muscles that are used most in that sport. So if you have a particular sport in mind, it's reasonable to do a sport-specific regimen before you start. 
Right. And one of the most important things that we find, really, is the way you do things, the way you move, and your technique. And you hear about this a lot maybe in, in baseball pitchers, how people throw, but it really it's important in everything. The way you swing a golf club, um, the way you throw is very important. And uh, it, it's not just throwing with your shoulder. You really should throw with your whole body. And we have a lot of kids we see who, you know, they have some shoulder pain and, and chances are, you know, we can, we can do some exercises and work on the shoulder and, and, and help that. But if they have a, a flaw in their mechanics about the way they're throwing, say they, they face the plate, uh, too soon, we call opening up with the hips too early, that'll put excessive stress in the shoulder. So no matter what we do to rehab the shoulder, if they don't have good mechanics and good technique, they're at risk of a problem. You know, you've heard of tennis elbow, and you know, if you, if you kind of lead with your elbow and, and snap your wrist through on the ball, well, that's going to be a risk factor for that. So we you, re- Yeah, I was just going to say, when you think about it, um, the Major League Baseball players have six weeks of spring training. So for us to say that, oh, I haven't done anything all winter long, and now I'm going to get out there and work in the garden for five hours, um, you probably shouldn't be surprised if you end up with some pain the next day. Exactly. And, and you know, normal soreness when we do something we haven't done in a while, that's okay. But, but again, you want to make sure you're preparing yourself for the type of activity you're going to do. And really, that, that, that almost should really be throughout the winter. So if, if you have a passion or a hobby that you like to do, you want to keep up with that. Say you like to run, and, and in Minnesota, again, this winter was tough and getting out there, but, you know, maybe it's running on a treadmill or running indoors or, or doing some mall walking and, and, and anything you can do to kind of simulate that type of activity year-round. Um, if you're a golfer, maybe going to the indoor range and, and hitting, some, hitting some balls, doing some simulated swings, having your pro work on your swing mechanics during the winter so that when spring comes you're you're ready to go so it, it's nice to have that preparation year-round for what you're doing so so your muscles and your body aren't aren't surprised when you finally start using them yeah, it's probably um, too much to ask that you not end up being a little bit sore after the first time that you get out in the garden or go for a run but if you can minimize that that's probably a good idea right exactly you have truly learned a lot about sport specific regimens uh, to get someone prepared for their uh, specific sport. But how about some, some general guidelines for people who, who may not be concentrating on one sport, but just general overall conditioning? What do you recommend, for, and especially uh, for older individuals mm-hmm. to prevent falls, etc.? Well, and you know, we want to really keep people moving because uh, we still have an epidemic in this country. About 70% of our nation is overweight or obese and has a sedentary lifestyle. So we really want to get everybody moving into something. Our current guidelines for Americans are 150 minutes of moderate intense activity per week. And that's been found to be uh, cardiovascularly, so heart protective, and it's also protective against certain cancers. So this could be walking, it could be stationary bicycle, it could be an elliptical trainer, um, whatever. But that basically boils down to about 30 minutes, five days a week of activity. And the more you can weave it into your day, the better. For weight loss, even higher amounts of activity, like 60 minutes, five days a week, are, are probably what's needed. So, so that essential component, that really makes a difference in, in our longevity as well as our quality of life. Um, other aspects we focus on is, is strength training. And all of us lose uh, about 10% of our lean muscle mass per decade after age 30. So um, the, the good news is we can actually replace that and get that back if we work at it. So that's 2% a year that we lose in muscle mass after age 30. Right, right. And that's, you know, we always say, oh, I used to get away with that when I was younger. Well, you know, <laughs> your physiology was different when you were younger. But, uh, and we didn't have to work at it as much when we were younger. So but is that weightlifting? 
for strength training? Is it just weightlifting only, or what else can we count you know, towards any, weightlifting? Any resistance that mm-hmm. challenges the muscle is good. So whether it's by a weight itself, whether it's by a band, a resistance band, whether it's by a soup can, whether it's by water. Mm-hmm. Some of you have seen those water resistance wands that people use. So anything that challenges the muscle to work, and just like we challenge our heart muscle, it gets stronger. If we challenge the muscle, it will get stronger too. So we want to, and especially, Tom, you mentioned older people, it's certainly a risk of falls and all, strong muscles produce stable joints. So the more we work on strength training for the muscles around the joints, that that can help prevent falls. So far, Dr. Leskowski, we have learned that 150 minutes of moderately intense exercise every week, some strength training, and what's your favorite phrase about preparing for an athletic endeavor? Well, you don't want to use your sport to be in shape. You want to be in shape to play your sport. Perfect. We're talking spring training with Mayo Clinic Sports Medicine Specialist Dr. Ed Leskowski. We're going to take a short break, but when we come back, myth or matter of fact, stretching as part of my workout is nice to do, but not critical to getting in shape. Myth or matter of fact. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Tracy McRae. And I'm Tom Jives. We're talking about getting ready for your favorite spring or summer sport with Mayo Clinic Sports Medicine Specialist, Dr. Ed Laskowski. And so, Dr. Laskowski, myth or matter of fact, stretching as part of my workout is nice to do, but not critical for getting in shape. Myth or matter of fact. Okay. Well, I think stretching is important. I think the controversy comes around some studies that came out that showed that if you did a static stretch, say you did your classic runner's heel cord stretch, and then you participate in a very aggressive ballistic activity like a 100-meter sprint, there may be some decrement in performance when you do something like that. But overall, I prefer to use the term range of motion about a joint rather than stretching. In other words, we want the optimum range of motion about our joint so our muscles can work effectively within that range and do what they need to do. One of the things that we find most important is symmetry or side-to-side equality. And we always tell people, you know, some people say, oh, doc, I stretch all the time. I'm not getting anywhere. And that's okay. There's a genetic set point in flexibility for everybody and that mm-hmm. nobody has, every, not everybody has to be a, a gymnast or a ballerina. But if you've had an injury, there may be some tightening of the tissues and you may have a side to side difference. So say you've had a hamstring strain and you're tighter on one side and another, that has been shown to be a predilection for injury, a predisposing factor for injury. So we really want to have symmetry side to side. And we also want to have the optimum range given your genes and your genetics. Say say you run hills. Well, your Achilles tendon needs to be able to accommodate to that hill. And if it's not as flexible, it's going to get a lot of loading when you're going up and down hills. That may lead over time to some overuse Achilles injuries. So if you have the optimal range of motion about the joint, you minimize the stress to the tissue. So it sounds like you're saying stretching is a bit overrated. Well, I think it's no. I, I think it is good. I think it's for the for the right reasons, though, to ensure equalness side to side, and and to stretching does increase muscle blood flow too, and so it sort of gets you ready. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was just before or after. That's well, what I was going to ask. That's a great point because <laughs> a lot of people say, "Well, you should stretch before and after," and, and it's hard with our lifestyles and everything. We kind of advocate a just a gradual warm up when you get into an activity. So if you're going out for a run, do kind of a walk, walk, jog, then get into your run. Actually, after you've run, that's when your muscle's most warm and your blood flow is increased, and you're probably more likely to gain a benefit from a stretch at that time. So stretching during the cool-down period is a, is a really nice time to do it. Hmm. Another thing is you really... 
really have to hold the stretches about 30 seconds to really get the benefit that you need. And if you if you kind of just look on the fitness floor and watch people, you know, it's probably 5, 10 seconds that people are holding stretches. But our research shows that you have to have that prolonged tug on the tissue to actually get it to change and remodel. The myth or matter of fact? No pain, no gain. That's a myth. I mean, certainly, <laughs> as we talked about, the pain from kind of going into exercise levels that you've never been to before, you're kind of gradually improving as far as you're, maybe you're in a 5K or a or half marathon or marathon program, you're going to get that normal soreness that occurs, and that's okay. If that gets better the next day, you know, you kind of work it out, walk it out, not a problem. But we don't want to have to, you know, force ourselves into painful positions and, and also uh, do, do weight training or anything that, that's really causing excruciating pain. That usually indicates injury to the tissue. So the phrase, play through the pain... What do you think of that one? Yeah. No, we, we don't, don't like that either. That. No. <laughs> Those days are over. Pain is feedback. It really is. It's, sure. uh, you know, I think God gave us that to let us know, you know, we want to take our hand off the, the stove and, and everything <laughs> like that. So, so we need to, it's, it kind of draws attention to something. So if we have a pain in the knees, hmm, you know, what is it? An overtraining issue? Do we actually have an injury there? So, um, you know, we like to respect the pain and, and see what's causing it. And maybe just a normal soreness and all, and that's okay. But if it's pain due to a tissue injury, that's what we want to address. Your body's trying to tell you something. Exactly. Let's go back to the lowly walking. It seems like walking is becoming more popular as a accepted fitness routine. Is walking really that beneficial? Walking is fantastic. It really is. I think it gets a bad rap because some people say, oh, if I'm not running, I'm not really doing what I need to be. And they, no they pain, think no gain. Yeah, <laughs> right. I think they're not worthy right. of, of fitness. But walking is just fine. And multiple, multiple studies um, throughout the years. There was just a huge study in Europe, about 500,000 people that looked at people who walked about 20 minutes, um, equivalent of about 20 minutes. And they had about a 30% reduction in their mortality or their risk of dying. 30%. 30%. Wow. So, and that's concordant with all the studies. You don't have to, I mean, running is great. If you like running and all, that's fine, but you don't have to run to get a great workout. And it's just, again, in, in those 150 minutes, if you walk those 150 minutes at a moderate pace, that's just fine. And it's going to give you the same health benefit. And um, and certainly even as people begin an exercise program, it's oftentimes a lot more appealing. And, and they say, oh, I don't, I don't like to run or I can't run that far. Well, you don't have to. Walk you know, breaks. Exactly. I love the walk breaks during mm-hmm. the run. <laughs> and the goal is 10,000 steps a day, isn't it? Isn't that Yeah, 10,000 steps a day is the equivalent of about that magic mark that we, you know, that 150 minutes a week if you if you do those 10,000. Now we have um, activity monitors, so they're a little bit more sensitive than the pedometers from before where you could shake them and, and get a bunch of, <laughs> bunch of steps. So the more sensitive actigraphs and activity monof- monitors are, are getting pretty reliable at, at kind of counting those totals. So they're nice to wear because you can kind of ensure throughout the day that you're getting the activity that you need. Shaking is cheating, sounds like to me. <laughs> Talk to us about some common injuries that you see in the ill-prepared. You know, a lot of the injuries focus on what you're doing. So say if you if you don't throw much and you start throwing a lot and you don't have great technique, then you're going to get some shoulder pain. So we can see some rotator cuff issues there. One of the things in the shoulder that we emphasize, um, in most people's workout programs, they tend to emphasize the front muscles in the shoulder. And saying we have say everybody's got Cadillacs in the front and Volkswagens in the back or, <laughs> or some such. So 
they they kind of work biceps, they work chest muscles, but maybe maybe not the muscles in the back of the shoulder. And we live in a forward world. We're always in front of computers. We're forward in our shoulders. We're forward with our head. So we really need to work at getting that balance in. So we have actually people stretch out the front of the chest, like the pectoral region, and actually strengthen the back, the upper back and the back of the shoulder, the posterior deltoid, the scapular stabilizing muscles. That actually gives scapular shoulder blade. Exactly, the shoulder blade muscles. That gives them a balanced shoulder and actually protects the rotator cuff when you're doing throwing sports or overhead activities. Now, the rotator cuff, uh, that is the, the, the tendons that come out from the muscles about the, the scapula or the shoulder blade that attach to the upper end of the arm bone that allow the you to move your arm around. Correct? Exactly. Those are the, there's four muscles and tendons that actually form like a cuff around the upper arm bone, which is the humerus, and they kind of hold it in place. Um, they they do a nice job of stabilizing the shoulder. But there's other muscles around the shoulder joint too that that contribute to that balance. And if we if we get that, we actually protect. The, if we get that balance, we protect those muscles. A lot of people call it rotary cuff, but actually it's <laughs> rotator yeah. cuff, right? <laughs> exactly. Mm-hmm. Uh, one thing uh, if we talked about uh, walking becoming a little more popular. One thing I wanted to ask about was something that I seem to notice a lot more of, and that's foam rollers. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So um, first of all, explain what a foam roller is and what it does. Well, a foam roller is just a, a kind of a pressure device. It's really the, the, the same styrofoam foam you may see in a packing crate, but it's made into a roller form. And you, you press that on the muscle, and it actually it almost is like a self-massage. Mm-hmm. And what it does is it, it kind of um, kneads tissue a little bit. It massages tissue. Uh, it's been shown to increase blood flow into tissue. So it's a good thing where you're trying to facilitate and aid your stretching program, maybe, if you have a tight area that you're really trying to work out, if you have areas that get tight after you exercise, um, foam rollers can be a nice help to, to help you with that. Yeah, well, instead of you know going for a massage, you can almost get that same benefit with uh, learning how to do those techniques on yourself. It's a cheap masseuse. <laughs> what that is. You know, before you go, uh, Tracy needs some new running shoes, I've, I've noticed. And you can go to the store, and no matter what store you go to, there's a hundred different options. Help us with that. How, what are the criteria that you use to pick out a good pair of running shoes? Is it comfortable? <laughs> That's really it. You or know what's on sale? Well, you know, we, we, there's a lot of um, talk about. Well, boy, this this shoe is best for this foot type. Like you may have heard. Well, I, I pronate a lot, or I have a flat arch, or oh, I have a rigid arch. And people will say, well, you need a motion control shoe because you pronate a lot, or oh, you need a cushioning shoe because you have a, a very rigid foot. Believe it or not, when we look at studies, there's actually been no correlate between your type of foot and the type of shoe wear you should have. So we really stress just getting a good, comfortable shoe that you like and that you like to wear. One of the more important things is changing it quite frequently. We find that no matter what material the shoe is made of, after about three to 400 miles, that material breaks down and loses its shock absorbency. So just even on the calendar, say you run 20 miles a week or so, just count off the number of weeks and kind of put a dot, say new shoes, because the shoe may look good, but in our biomechanical studies, well, that 20% loss can be can be an effective, uh, can cause, contribute to injury. Three or 400 miles on your shoes, Tracy, you got to get a new pair. I better keep. Actually, my birthday's coming up. I'll be looking for that, Dr. Shives. Thanks so much, Dr. Laskowski, for your spring training tips. Again, Dr. Ed Laskowski is a sports medicine specialist at Mayo Clinic. Still to come on Mayo Clinic Radio, wearable digital fitness devices. Choosing the one that's right for you. And when the room starts spinning, treating vertigo. If you have a health-related question you'd like us to answer or a topic you'd like us to cover, tweet us anytime at hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio or send us an email at mayoclinicradio at mayo.edu. Coming up, the latest health and medical news with Vivian Williams. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. 
Hi, I'm Vivian Williams with this Mayo Clinic News Network headline. It's Colon Cancer Awareness Month, so let's talk about colon polyps. A new technique developed by experts in Great Britain is making it easier to remove large polyps that form in the rectum. Now, that's important because polyps there tend to grow to be very large, and the bigger they are, the more likely they are to become cancerous. But traditional surgery to remove large rectal polyps may result in the need for a stoma to allow stool to be collected in an outside bag. The new technique changes that. It can save the rectum and patients can go home the same day. Mayo Clinic Dr. Eric Dozois says the procedure is revolutionary for patients who otherwise would have to endure major surgery. So we can effectively get this polyp out without having to put them through a major operation. Those are the patients that benefit the most from this type of procedure. Dr. Rezois says polyp removal is key to preventing cancer, and he and his colleagues perform this procedure at Mayo Clinic. And that's a look at a Mayo Clinic News Network headline. I'm Vivian Williams. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shai. And I'm Tracy McRae. Well, Tracy, they have names like Fitbit and Garmin Forerunner and Basis Peak and Misfit Flash. <laughs> they come in a rainbow of colors, and but they all have one thing in common. They're wearable digital devices, and they're supposed to help you keep fit. Dr. Phil Hagen is joining us. He's a specialist in preventative and occupational medicine. We're going to talk about these devices and how they can help us to keep fit. Welcome, Dr. Hagen. Good to have you on the program. Thanks for having me. So they, we've got all these devices out there you see people wearing them on their wrist what do they really do and and are you a proponent well i am a proponent i think this is an exciting area it's exciting just because of the novelty of it so i can put a little device on my wrist and it can count the steps that i take during the day or i can put a little band around my chest and it can monitor my heart rate uh, all day long or when i go up for my run and that really to me is a leap forward in terms of what the technology can do for us isn't it fair to say, though, that it's almost this is almost a toy? Yeah. I, so that's not all bad. Uh, I believe it's a tool. And if it gets people to take better care of their health, then the $100 or whatever it costs is well spent. If that little bit of novelty gets a segment of the, of the population interested or excited about their health so that they do it, Again, I think it's money well spent. Um, and so, yes, while there is a, an element of gimmickry to it, um, I do think that it's a useful uh, element of gimmickry and that the concept of monitoring some aspect of our uh, activity, we call it biomedical uh, information or biometric information, is really helpful. Uh, do you think these are accurate? I mean, if it says you took 10,000 steps, which is, isn't that how many you're supposed to take yes. every day? Do you think th that it's fairly accurate? Yeah, uh, it, it's a great question. And until just a, a month or so ago, uh, a lot of us were uh, kind of talking to our friends and saying, well, how accurate do you think it is? And did you uh, measure out the mile that you ran? And then did it say you ran a mile? And the study was published. It was a, a research letter in JAMA about a month ago. And in that, they compared a number of these devices. And the fun part about this study was that they looked at three that you wear on your waist, three that you wear on your wrist, and three that you hold in your pocket, like your smartphone. And what they found out was that, yes, they're relatively accurate, and uh, it's probably something uh, for the ones you hold in your pocket uh, about the same as the bathroom scale in terms of measuring your weight. Uh, for the Always ones you too high. Uh, no, <laughs> a little high, a little low. 
Okay. <laughs> um, and for the ones you wear on your wrist, those are the least accurate, interestingly, but maybe not surprisingly because some people move their arms a lot sure. when they exercise and some don't. Um, and the ones you wear on your waist were the most accurate. And for that group, uh, they were accurate to within about 2% or so. So uh, they've gotten better and better. They keep getting better and better. And uh, for the for the uh, people who really want accurate counts, get one that sits on your waist. What's your favorite feature, uh, Dr. Hager, of the ones that are out there? What do you like that they do? Yeah, uh, the thing that I like best about them is one that they uh, count steps because steps are the most commonly used exercise. So when I'm talking to patients about, uh, okay, I'm not a, an athlete, uh, what can I do? Uh, almost everybody can walk. And so this counting steps is great. And the it's, people who are competitive really get into competing about their steps. Yes, they do. It's kind of fun to <laughs> and, sit around drinking beer and talking about all the steps that you got in today. Yes, and, and so uh, they all should read that study so that they're all using <laughs> counting steps in the same way. Um, the second thing is that, that most of them have a program that makes it really easy to download your steps used to be you'd go into a website, clunky thing, and, and type your own steps in and that sort of thing. And most of them also can count calories burned. And so uh, these have become more and more interesting, more and more useful. We actually use uh, one of them in our Healthy Living program. Uh, we send them out to, to people before they come to enter into the Healthy Living program so that we can talk to them about how much they do during the day, but also when they do it during the day. So that there's uh, research literature that says if you go out and exercise just the way you're supposed to, but you spend the rest of the day sitting in front of a screen, you're still at higher risk for developing heart disease and obesity and those sorts of things. And so part of the future message is going to be, hey, get up and move during the day. Um, so the devices help us also to look at that. Can you program that device? So if somebody comes through the Healthy Living program and you uh, prescribe a, a particular regimen, can you program that into their uh, device? Not quite like that, but what you can do and what we really like is they can collect the information before they come, then they can come here, we can work out a very personalized program for them, and then when they go home, they can continue to wear their monitor and they can talk to a coach, either online or on the phone, who can then say, okay, here's the program we worked out for you. How's it going for you? I see that you uh, did 10,000 steps on these three days and, and 2,000 on one of those days, what happened on that day. Um, and so all of a sudden, it, it makes the conversation quicker and smarter. Uh, it moves us along in terms of working with people. We don't know for sure what's coming out with the new iWatch, but you mentioned that if you put a band around your chest, you can keep track of your heart rate. But I think the iWatch is going to do that with a device right on your wrist. Right. right. You know, that's what's so fun about this is the <laughs> opportunities are huge. So um, the devices that we're talking about measure movement. Um, but the iPhones or phones, uh, smartphones in general and the iWatch have the GB, GPS capability. And so if you're a bike rider and you're not moving your wrist much at all, um, it can still record how far you went and how quickly you did it uh, and estimate your speed on the bike. Um, so that's using something that's built into all those smart devices. They're also starting to look uh, at the ability to record heart rate with something as small uh, as a watch. And then a few other things. In fact, there are some wearable devices in the market that measure um, your your heart rate, your body temperature, how much, how many breaths you take. So you can just see this moving from the the medical world where we monitor some of these sorts of things to a consumer world. Um, and uh, I think that 
that's a good thing as long as you can get over Big Brother uh, collecting all your data and watching it. Um, we're going to be able to help people that's with conditions like what I was, Yeah, that's what I was going to get into when you talk about the Big Brother aspect of it because some people don't like that there's a device that can report back on their whatever they did that day. Other people, you know, like you said, if it's somebody who's recovering from a heart attack or if there's some sort of, if it's part of a medical plan, or um, then it's a different situation, isn't it? It is, um, and I think that that I am a certified paranoid, so uh, I think people really should be looking at those sorts of things. Uh, where's my information? Who has it? How's it passing back and forth? And those sorts of things. And if you're comfortable with it for something like uh, how many steps you take in a day, okay, uh, then I think it's a useful tool. When you get into the area of medical information, it uh, to me is much more um, confidential. Um, that we need to take much greater measures to protect that information um, and uh, that, we, that we need to create, create a pretty clean line between um, me and what I choose to put out there uh, on Facebook or whatever else and my medical information, which should really be locked down tightly. There could be a situation, though, where you've got two people who are just recovering from heart attacks and one who is not really that engaged in their recovery and the other who really is that a device can tell an insurance company who is being a more proactive patient and who is not i mean is that part of that danger that people are afraid of that it it'll be information that ends up being used against you well i as with all technology uh, you know whether it's a smartwatch or the atom bomb uh, it can be used for good things and for bad things and so i think the technology and science have taken us to that level. It's up to us to make sure that we use it the right way and that we create protections for that sort of thing. Do you ever think we'll get to the point where you can actually measure and monitor someone's blood glucose or someone's uh, blood pressure with a device that you put on your wrist? Yeah, the answer to that is yes, and wow. probably sooner than many of us would realize. Uh, I was going to say this year? <laughs> well, next year, uh, I think pretty, yeah, pretty soon. Yeah. So, so we do that already. We measure oxygen level in people in the hospital by clipping a little device on their finger mm-hmm. that reads through the skin. And that technique can be used for measuring other things like blood sugar, uh, or other blood tests for that matter. And so, yeah, stay tuned. Wearable devices. Pretty incredible. Dr. That's Hagen, amazing. thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. Dr. Hagen is a specialist in preventive and occupational medicine at Mayo Clinic and medical director for Healthy Living at Mayo Clinic Global Business Solutions. Coming up, what to do when your world is spinning from vertigo. That's next on Mayo Clinic Radio. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom John. And I'm Tracy McRae. Dizziness. You know, most of us have had brief moments of feeling unsteady, maybe lightheaded, usually after getting up from a sitting or lying down position for a long time. But, you know, for some people, dizziness goes way beyond those symptoms and includes the strong sensations that their surroundings are spinning or moving rapidly. Tell me about it, Tom. <laughs> yeah, You've been there, have you? I have been there, yes. And here to talk about vertigo, what causes it and how it's treated. Is Dr. Neil Shepard. He holds a PhD in audiology and is a professor of audiology at Mayo Clinic. Welcome back to the program, Dr. Shepard. Thank you. Nice to ha- be back. How much of your day is taken up helping people who have vertigo? Uh, probably about 50% of the patients I see will wow. complain of vertigo, the sense that something is moving when it's really not, whether it's them or whether it's the environment or both. 
And uh, explain the difference between that, or is there a difference, that and dizziness? Dizzy, there is a difference, and dizziness is really uh, sensations of lightheadedness, um, sensations of vague fogginess in the head, issues of that nature. It does not involve the aspect of perceiving that either you or something in your environment is moving. Yeah, some people will say that they feel like they are moving, and some people will say it feels like everything's moving around them. Right. Both of those are vertigo. Both of those are vertigo. We, we divide them up and call it internal and external vertigo, but the sensation that anything is in motion when it's not. What's Who the most was moving com- when you had it? <laughs> is it you or Everything was moving when I had it. And yeah. it can be both. Can't yeah. be pleasant, huh? What's the most common cause of vertigo? The most common cause in adults is what we call benign paroxysmal positional vertigo, or BPPV, or people refer to it as the crystals out of place. And it's actually a mechanical problem, not a problem with the nerve or the sensory system in the inner ear. But we do have little crystals in there that are supposed to be there in order to make you sensitive to gravity. And when the ear can is damaged sometimes, they can get out of place. And when they get into different parts of the balance organ, they can actually create a different way of stimulating the system, particularly movements, head movements. And how do they get out of place? They, the way they're held in place is with a, uh, a uh, like a jelly uh, membrane that holds them. And we slough them off, we reabsorb them, and we reproduce them all of our life. If the ear is damaged for some reason, um, or you just bump your head against a cabinet, simple little things of that type, you can actually dislodge them from the mechanism that holds them. And because they're in a fluid base in a, con- in a uh, sealed container, if you want to think about it that mm-hmm. way, they can migrate into different parts of the system, most likely into a part we call the posterior semicircular canal. And that happens when you lie down at night. And so when they migrate into there, that they settle, and then you wake up the next morning, you make your first movement to look at the clock, and bang, <laughs> off it goes. This whole conversation is making me a little queasy. It's bringing yeah. back a lot of stuff. How do you uh, test people to see if they have vertigo? Uh, specifically for that one, yeah. we put them through a particular maneuver called a Dick's Hall Pike test, where we actually lie them into a position that is most likely to cause their symptoms to occur and to cause a, an eye movement response along with it. If the eye movement response is there, and if their symptoms are there, then that defines the benign positional vertigo. And, and how do you fix it? Yeah, how do you get those little crystals back where they belong? Actually, it, it all looks like smoke and mirrors, but it's not. It's really all based on physics and geometry. And so we can put the individual, knowing which canal or which part is involved, we can put the person in a particular position and then slowly manipulate them through movements in order to move the crystals from where they are back to an area where they're not, their movements will not cause problems. Is that what you had to do? I did. And how long does that, how many treatments? <laughs> yeah, basically, about 90% of individuals with this, after one maneuver, uh, it will resolve it. Wow. Now, that's got to be a relief. But the caveat is that about 50% of people that have uh, well-defined maneuvers that do resolve it recur within the first year. Because does that mean that then your ear crystals are more likely to fall off again, or is it always the same little crystal that is not sticking where it needs to be? 
Well, we don't know specifically, mm-hmm. but chances are, no, it's not the same crystal mm-hmm. because those reabsorb when they're free-floating in, in the fluid that's there enzymatically. And so, yes, the crystals are more likely to come off uh, once the ear is damaged from something else or a head injury or the disease processes, a variety of different things that can do it. So that's BPPV. Correct. And you would say that uh, the majority of people who have vertigo have this condition? Uh, No, about 30%. 30%. And how about the others? The others are different conditions, diseased entities. Uh, One of the rare ones, but everybody knows the name, is Meniere's disease, which creates a situation where people end up with Spinning sensations instead of seconds to a minute or so, as in BPVV. Now we're talking about 20 minutes to 8 to 10 hours. And that's more difficult to treat, huh? Yeah, it is indeed. Medications that you use for that? or There are medications, there are dietary controls, there are surgical procedures, a variety of different things can be used for Meniere's disease. But it's rare. We're talking less than, if you look at the general population, less than a quarter of a percent. The folks that have vertigo, though, I know in my own case and in all sorts of people who have come up to me and talk to me about it afterwards, the first time you have vertigo, it's almost unbearable. And explain why it is so much I don't know, there's something that your brain can't believe what's going on or what's happening when you first have vertigo. Well, what basically is happening is that typically one of the balance organs in the inner ears is set off inappropriately, either through like the crystals, disorders like vestibular neuritis, um, Meniere's disease, labyrinthitis, there's a variety of things that can do it. When that happens, it really disconnects you from your environment very severely. And nothing creates anxiety, angst, uh, fear more rapidly than to have you all of a sudden disconnected from your environment, inability to control what's happening to you. You're out of control. And so it's very scary. Most people feel like they're dying when this happens. I did think I was dying. You were close? I did, actually. And I couldn't sit up. I couldn't stand. They actually had to call the paramedics came and got me Mm -hmm. because I was, I did think I was dying. And Mm -hmm. I've had a lot of people tell me the same thing. That's what it feels like is happening. Yeah, that doesn't sound, I'm glad you got better. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's what's so amazing about it. And I think it must be fascinating what you do Mm -hmm. because um, it is so debilitating, but your, yet your brain can figure out its way around it in a way. Right. You have an internal process that when one side acts up, other than in Meniere's disease, the acting up of the, the side that's inappropriately functioning, the brain can go into a mechanism where it will compensate for that. And in fact, for most people that have uh, a disorder like vestibular neuritis, which is an infection that occurs, it's not the medications at the very first. It's your brain that within the first 24 hours to 72 hours is really making you feel better. And then it's got to compensate for the fact that when you make movements, it's got to now adjust to that, which is a much longer process. What percentage of patients who have vertigo do you ultimately, are you ultimately able to cure? I mean, are there some that just have it and you can't get rid of it? There are some that will have an expression of vertigo that, you know, we can work, we can reduce it, but not eliminate it. But that's a very small percentage. I would uh, speculate that probably 80 to 85 percent of the patients we see with vertigo, we can either reduce down to the point where it's not interfering with their with their lifestyle or it's gone. Is there anybody with vertigo who shouldn't go see their doctor? No. 
<laughs> it sounds like you've got a pretty good handle on this, though. The, your percentage of being able to cure or at least significantly help is very high. Yes, it is. Thanks for the great update. You're welcome. That's our program for this week. For more information about topics discussed today, visit us on the web at Mayo Clinic News Network, where you can access a podcast of today's show, previously aired programs, and the latest news from Mayo Clinic. Do you have a question about health and medicine from one of our Mayo Clinic experts? Tweet us anytime at hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio. We'll be answering your questions in upcoming programs. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our senior producer is Rich Deepman, our social media editor, Audrey Castletime. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Thanks for being with us. Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice, and you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, radio.mayoclinic.org. Please join us each week on this station for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know. 